at various times, nurture becomes nature. It gets under the skin. It becomes the biology. You're listening to Daniel Keating, a professor of psychology, psychiatry, and pediatrics at the University of Michigan. One of the topics that keeps coming up in the first season is the topic of nature versus nurture. As I immersed myself in the topic, I came across Daniel's fascinating book, Born Anxious, and I was excited to sit down with Daniel and talk about his research. Through the example of stress dysregulation, we discussed how our nurture can impact our nature and essentially change our kids' gene structure. We talked about the attachment theory, the importance of responsiveness and physical contact, and much more. Enjoy. I'm Guy Michelin, and this is Raising to Rise, a show about the parents, educators, and mentors of kids who made it to the top of their game. Every week, we'll identify patterns and pieces of advice that hopefully will serve you while on the journey of raising your own kids. Dan, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So to kick things off, the title of your book is called Born Anxious. Can you explain why and what was the inspiration to actually write the book and what's the main thesis behind it? Sure. So the basic idea is, and the subtitle is, The Lifelong Impact of Early Life Adversity and How to Break the Cycle. It starts off with really a kind of a science story, which is how we came to understand the nature of what was going on for a variety of individuals as they have different developmental experiences, particularly early in life. And the particular motivation or the direction is some relatively recent work. It's getting to be more established now, but I had the good fortune to be asked to lead a, a kind of a distributed think tank of scholars from around North America, and it was called the Human Development Program, and it was supported by an NGO called the Canadian Institute for Advanced Research. And that was really focusing on what are the sorts of things that lead some individuals to thrive and others not to thrive, and some individuals to be healthy and others not to be healthy. What can we understand about that? And our particular focus was on what are the kind of developmental processes, what are the patterns that lead to those sorts of things. One of the most fascinating, and I start with a kind of a detailed retelling of very exciting scientific time, which is when we came to understand that part of the reason for that is that our developmental experiences, our social experiences, not just physical exposures, but social exposures, can, as we say, get under the skin. So various kinds of experiences of stress or trauma or adversity early in life have the capacity to translate themselves into an enduring biological change in the individual. And the most studied of those are impacts on brain development, that we know that the brain is shaped very much by social experiences, and also the new field of what's called epigenetics. But epigenetics is a field that says that actually how genes work can be changed by experiences and exposures over the course of development. And early in life is a very sensitive time for that. And very specifically, the one example that animates a lot of the, the narrative of the book is a particular gene that's impacted by social experiences and that is important for how we're able to regulate our stress response. It's a particular part of the stress response system that essentially tells the system when it's safe to turn off your stress 
response, when it's safe to stand down after you've had some kind of a response to a threat or a challenge or something that you feel like you you know need to get done that's very difficult, maybe even scary. Most individuals who have a sort of not dysregulated system are able to kind of calm back down to a baseline level and get ready for whatever is to come after that. But some individuals both have a hair-trigger response to stressful or threatening or perceived to be threatening situations and therefore activate the stress response system, which has adrenaline and cortisol as a couple of its major products. And that amps us up, gets us ready to deal with things. So it's a very functional thing to have. But if you can't bring it back to a baseline or if it's going off way more often than it should, it's hyperactive in both the start and the delayed finish. And it leads to a host of developmental health consequences in physical health, in cognition and learning, and in behavior and emotion management. So just to recap as a layman to make sure I understand, essentially what you're saying is that if a baby all the way from conception to its first birthday is exposed to stress, either because the parents are stressed during the pregnancy or in his first year of living, then there is a mutation, or I think you call it a methylation yes. of a specific gene. And this gene is the gene that's responsible to regulate our flight and fight mechanism. So if we get all hyper because there is a danger or stress, this specific gene is the one that's supposed to calm us down once this danger has passed. And if I have this mutation, essentially, it's much harder to calm myself. So I'm, I will prolong this period of stress much longer than, quote unquote, a normal kid would. That's essentially correct. The other part to keep in mind is that this methylation is one that doesn't actually change the underlying DNA at all. The underlying DNA remains the same. You can think of it as an on-off switch. It tells the gene to do what it's supposed to do or says, no, stand down, don't do that, turn off. And this particular one is designed to let the genes act to turn off the system, and it is compromised, methylated, can be by those early experiences. And so a couple of follow-up questions on this. First of all, What's the percentage in the population that is actually suffering? I think uh, the short for this is uh, SDR, which stands for stress dysregulation. Why should the listeners care? Is that something that's applicable to most of the people that are actually listening now? If I had to guess, I would say that 20 to 35 percent of individuals may have some version, some level of this kind of stress dysregulation. The other reason to be substantially concerned about it is that this kind of stress dysregulation and the difficulty with dealing with stress is clearly increasing over time quite substantially over the last several decades to the point where in the book I talk about it as a stress epidemic because, in fact, it is beginning to show up in much larger segments of the population with significant negative effects. So you touched upon uh, the implications a little bit earlier, but I want to go a little bit deeper on that. So kids that suffer from this mutation or have SDR, what's the implication? What are you seeing when you're following them throughout their childhood and later on into adolescence? And why should be, we should be as parents very attentive to understand if our kids actually have SDR? So it obviously expresses itself differently at different points in development. What we would typically see in infancy is that the baby's 
doesn't respond to the typical efforts to calm and to soothe them, right? So if you have a baby who's upset and crying, which is a pretty common event, we as parents typically have a fairly standard routine to get them to calm down. Sometimes they just need to be held or cuddled or walked around. Other times you need to check, well, do they need a diaper change? Are they hungry? Are they sleepy? And I need to make a really good effort to try to help them sleep. And we run through those sorts of things. And for most babies, at some point along the way, they get soothed. They calm down and they get into a different temperamental state. And of course, as babies, they don't have much in the way, even sort of the ability to regulate their own stress internally is very limited, right? They really do need that external support to do that. Babies that don't, you know, soothe when you go through the whole routine. Now, some babies will do that sometimes, right? Every Any baby could take a long time to soothe. But generally speaking, that the normal stress regulation and a normally functioning stress response system, that will work. And if it doesn't work and you see it going on and on, that can be problematic. And it's problematic, by the way, not just for the baby in that circumstance. It's problematic for the parent as well, because part of the system that's set up is that babies eventually do things that are charming and adorable and carrying around a baby that you've managed to soothe and get back to sleep is a true joy. If you don't get to experience that much because the baby can't be soothed, it creates problems in the relationship, obviously, between the parent and the child. And at different points, then it gets expressed differently. In, in toddlerhood, again, toddlers can be pretty emotional, but they're not able to kind of settle in and respond very sort of at a high level, at a high amplitude to normal variations in the sorts of things that are going on and have difficulty moving off of that. Now, of course, I should mention stress dysregulation is not the only reason that individuals might do that. There are a variety of other kinds of conditions that can lead to that. But certainly when we don't see those sorts of things happening for toddlers, we'd be concerned. When we get into school-age kids, it changes the game a bit because all of a sudden you've got peer relationships become pretty important and the ability to navigate the social world becomes very important. And so kids who have difficulty regulating that stress response system because of their hair trigger response are likely to have a good chance of alienating other kids and making it difficult for other kids to get along with them, to befriend them, to hang out with them. They're much more likely to have a kind of what we call a hostile attribution bias, that they're over-interpreting what other kids might regard as neutral events or a mild concern that should be just resolved easily. They take to heart and attribute significant hostility to others. So it impacts that social relationships, which is critical because that's how you learn how to be a social being. You have to learn how to interact with people, and that means that you have to have some ability to regulate your stress, regulate your emotional life. And it also has consequences for learning and cognition. If you're kind of amped up all the time, on edge all the time, it's very difficult to shift your attention and get deeply involved in tasks of learning to put your attention into that. Basically, adolescence is a similar picture, but even amplified. The complications that come with adolescence, of course, a new body, new interests, peer relationships are even more important. We know that peer relationships, there's even changes in the brain that amplify how important it is for individuals to interact with peers. And so it can impact that as well as on the learning side. And I should say that one of the things that we would look for, there are different ways that this can get expressed. It doesn't always get expressed in the same way. So 
the broad terms that we tend to use in psychology, then they match up pretty much with fight or flight response, right? So the fight response is what we typically refer to as externalizing, that you have a hair trigger response, you act out in anger, you sort of attack individuals when there's really not needed, or you defend yourself in a way that's sort of problematic, or you take it as defending yourself, others might not see it as something that needs defending against. Others might not perceive threats where you perceive threats. So there's that whole pattern of things of acting out. There is, however, uh, the other version of it. If you think of it as a flight, it's not really running away so much in the literal sense, like from a an attacking tiger or something, but it is an internalizing. You essentially flee the social scene by going inside. You don't interact because it's too stressful to interact. And then gradually you become more and more socially isolated as a result of that. So those, particularly in adolescence, is where we begin to see those particular patterns manifesting themselves for individuals who do have this kind of stress dysregulation pattern. And it's also the point at which we begin to see them beginning to manifest in specifically sort of potentially psychiatric disorders or developmental psychopathology. So it seems like the stakes are very, very high here. And so obviously as a parent, uh, when I was reading your book, I was wondering if there are known level of stress that cause this mutation. And if it's a one-off episode, let's say I lose my temper with my kids once a month or once every two months, where is the line? Do we know where the line is so that I as a parent can watch out and look for the signs so I'm not going to basically trigger this very scary process that you have just described? So we don't have a precise dose-response relationship here in terms of what it is that can trigger this. But I would first say, even though I think it is a very serious thing to be taken very seriously, I certainly wouldn't want to be in the position to have people doubting every response that they tend to have. So in general, what we're talking about here, and I'm going to set aside issues about really dramatic traumatic events that are of a different kind of, of nature of this, but things that are fall into the notion of a stressful response, of a harsh response in a parenting situation, it really does need to be somewhat cumulative, somewhat what more typical, right? So if there's an atypical negative outburst, as long as it doesn't trip over into actual physical abuse, that that's not terribly likely to lead to this sort of pattern. What's more likely to lead to the pattern is a kind of an absence of responsiveness to the child, particularly to the baby, where a lot of this is going to get set, an absence of warmth or connection for that individual. And those are the phrase that we tend to use for that is it's the steady drip of everyday life that's more what we're talking about here. It's not sort of the occasional everybody has bad days and kids certainly don't respond to every negative event that's going on. But if it's a consistent pattern of harshness or a consistent pattern of neglect, those sorts of things do then start to come into the system and get under the skin in a way that changes these sorts of things. I think it's always good, obviously, for parents to be as aware as they can, as conscious as they can of what kind of interaction they're having. So as you have just mentioning, I've certainly had the experience of getting angry at one time or another with my own kids. And it's an unfortunate kind of thing. But if it's the atypical event and you do a repair fairly soon after that or as soon as you can manage after that, then it's not likely to have any kind of a lasting impact at all. So, I mean, it is a balance, right? We're talking about a system that's not like you either get the flu or you don't get the flu. It is something that there's an ongoing balance 
or regulation across these various kinds of interactions that a child will have with the parent. And how do you know if your child actually has this mutation or SDR? So on the biological side, we don't know all the specific genes that feed into the system. I talk about one in the book at some length so that there's a kind of a story behind it. But there are now subsequent to that, there even at that time, but subsequently a lot more different kinds of genes have come into play that we know can be methylated or epigenetically modified through experiences. So it is possible to test those candidate genes, if you will, to see how methylated they are. But it's not a typical, it's a more research enterprise kind of thing. It's a fairly complicated test that one would need to do. So it wouldn't be diagnostic in the everyday sense that one could use. On the behavioral side, I think that observing what's going on is to recognize that that when someone appears to be, I mean, in a sense, we know when we look at anybody, whether it's a kid or an adult, when they seem to be acting out of stress, when they seem to be acting out of anxiety, when they seem to be a little bit out of control, when they seem to be overwhelmed and so forth. Those are the kinds of signs that one would look for and combined with the inability to bring that back. I mean, everybody feels stressed, anxious, overwhelmed from time to time, but can they bring it back even with just a little bit of help? Can they bring it back into a more sort of stable situation that's calm enough that they can go and do other productive kinds of things? If they have great difficulty, even with a bit of help, to get out of that obvious demonstrations of stress or feeling overwhelmed or anxious, then obviously that would be something that one might want to take a closer look at. So that leads me to one other point in the book that caught my eye is that you're referring to this period between conception and the first birthday as a critical period in the life of a child, which I think is a little bit of a change from the notion that we've seen years ago where people said, no, this period actually doesn't matter a lot. What actually matters is when they can start talking and communicate uh, the years of three, four, and five. Can you explain a little bit why is this period so critical and how did you come up to this conclusion? There are different critical periods for different aspects of development. So there are different periods when the organism is expecting certain things to happen. And if it doesn't happen or happens in a not good way, it can have negative effects. In this particular case, when we're talking about the stress response system as a primary focus for this and others that go along with that, the location of the prenatal period through about the first year of life is because that does appear to be the time more or less when the stress response system does get set. Its physiology gets set. It's pretty hard to reverse after that. And so let's say my kids are within the 20-25% that have this type of condition, what can I do as a parent to reverse it? And I understand that it's essentially two periods that we're talking here. One is up until the first year, which seems that it's still reversible, and then later on in life, which it seems to be harder to reverse the condition. So for babies, the basic pattern is one that is kind of amplifying basic good parenting. And by that, I mean, we sometimes talked about the terminology of a kind of a super nurturing sort of thing. So if we go back to the notion of a baby who's very hard to soothe, 
We know that for just everyday parenting of infants, the two big factors are warmth, right? Maintaining a close connection and most often as a physical connection, holding or or rocking or that sort of thing, but certainly demonstrating positive emotions, using a positive voice for them, interacting with them, making sustained eye contact with them, and all those other demonstrations that we kind of intuitively know as parents demonstrate that we love them, that we want them, right? That we have a warm feeling towards them is the one part. And then the other is responsiveness to not walk away if the kid is feeling distressed, to be there for them, right? To respond to their needs and connect with them in that way. So there's these two components of warmth and responsiveness are the the fundamental heartbeat of good parenting for infants. Well, for any age, but certainly for infants when it's really critical. The super nurturing comes in is, as I mentioned, if that's not working, it's very hard to keep up. It's very hard to stay with the situation of feeling the warmth and the responsiveness. You're not getting the positive feedback that says, oh, thank heavens, I found a solution and I feel good about it. And now my baby's happy. And so I'm happy and we're all happy, et cetera, et cetera. You're not getting that, right? But you still need to keep it up. If you can do that kind of thing where you create that environment over time that can retrain that stress physiology to recognize that these are things that can be dealt with. Now, when we go beyond the infancy period, when, as I say, that we, so far as we know, we don't certainly yet know how to retool that underlying stress physiology, there are a variety of things that can mitigate how that impacts the individual. They may not be able to change the basic physiology or that provide workarounds. And the biggest one that we know about that falls into the sort of general category of resilience is very similar. It's a kind of a warmth and responsiveness to that individual, but specifically to help them to try to learn how to maintain positive social connections, to maintain positive social interactions. The biggest positive factor in resilience for individuals who have various kinds of difficulties like these is the ability to establish and maintain strong social connections. It creates a circumstance where that stress physiology can not get launched. And then a second big area is helping kids to understand themselves a bit more. Even for young kids, some early versions of mindfulness or some early versions of understanding having goals and trying to get to goals, sense of purpose, or just a conscious awareness of one's feeling. Eventually, and it depends on the age of the child, obviously, and this works for adults too, both things work for adults, is the notion that you can if you will, take control of your own situation, that you make some conscious decisions not to be driven by your internal physiology, but to stand back. So when we do the standard thing of don't react, step back and count to 10, it's an opportunity for us to choose what reaction we're going to have rather than be driven by that internal physiology. And it doesn't change the underlying stress physiology, but it channels it in a different direction. So the social connections will bring us to the scorecard. But before that, I have one more question on this. So in the book, you're mentioning attachment and the ability to soothe yourself as one of those three experiences that you say have a striking impact on the mental health of our kids. Right. Can you talk a little bit about attachment and how do kids develop this ability to soothe themselves? And again, is there anything that we as parents can do to help our kids develop this very important uh, trait? So attachment 
is kind of the the fundamental notion of the nature or quality of the connection initially between a parent and, and infant, often the mother, but certainly including fathers as well and even siblings. But where you have the quality of the relationship is one that has really kind of two components. One is that it's known as a secure base that you are safe when you're in the presence of that individual. And the other is the ability to go off and be an individual, to explore, to do various kinds of things. And we, there are some standard laboratory procedures to observe this in moms and baby pairs or dad and baby pairs called the strange situation where we put them in situations that are where the dad is or the mom is no longer there. They're there with an experimenter and how do they react, particularly how do they react when their parent returns. And it is both things that they feel Feel secure, they can get reassured when they get to, you know, have a reunion with the parent who's been away for a brief period of time, but then also go back to playing with toys or whatever it was that they were doing. So that notion of a secure attachment, it's obviously related to this warmth and responsiveness, but it is the quality of the dyad, the quality of the connection, if you will, that is important here. And it creates what we refer to during later life in childhood and adolescence and adulthood as an internal working model. Are other people and is the world a safe place to be that I can count on people? And the ways it can go wrong are, you know, various kinds of things where it leads the the baby to want to kind of avoid the parent because they really can't count on them for that sort of safety and reassurance, either because they have a history of the parent not being there when they needed them or the parent maybe being too harsh with them and they are fearful fearful of being with them, or what's known as an ambivalent style, which is that they sort of want to be with them, but they sort of want to don't. And those are kinds of also can create internal working models that impact how you relate to other people as you go through life. So establishing a positive attachment relationship is very much a part of being able to have good social connections, which as we've just talked about are very important for being able to potentially work around issues that have to do with stress dysregulation. The other part of kind of making choices and sort of being able to regulate oneself there is essentially a pattern throughout life where, as I mentioned, newborns essentially have no internal ability to regulate themselves, right? They just – they're driven entirely more by their physiology pretty much. And so it's a lifelong process to move from that – complete absence of internal regulation. You have to have someone there to help you soothe if you're going to soothe at all. And gradually internalizing the things that will make you able to control things. And early on, I think it's probably mindfulness is a big, too big of a word for this, but the notion that you can find things that will help you to be able to control what it is that you're doing, to make choices to be able to do what you want to do, and to learn how to internally regulate your emotions so you don't have to fly off the handle. You don't have to respond to someone who's being mean to you on the schoolyard with an escalation of aggression, for example, that you can step back from the situation and say, well, I don't really care about what that person said. It doesn't matter to me that much. That kind of ability to regulate one's own things is a transfer, if you will, from parents to kids over time so that you become ideally in adolescence or certainly by adulthood capable of internally regulating your own emotional life and your own behavioral responses to things. 
And how do you teach this to the kids? Besides well, yeah, talking so about the, it and mindfulness. I mean, the, yeah, for kids, you have to start obviously where they are developmentally. But one of the things that you can do is to give them choices that they can handle, right? So that you might, instead of say the kid who's having a tantrum because they they don't want to get dressed to go to preschool or wherever, you know, if you just sort of clamp down and say, look. You just have to do it. Just go get dressed. They may not have the capability of being able to pull that off. They don't have the mental control, if you will, or internal regulatory system to be able to do that. But if you, for example, say, well, actually, no, we do have to go. Now, which did you want? Did you want to wear your blue shirt or your red shirt? Which one would you choose? And then often that is enough to get them off wherever they are, right? Whatever stressful reaction they're having. And they'll just kind of, oh, okay, well, I'll go blue. And then they can begin to process that. So very early on, you can start with giving them choices that they can handle, but that they still have agency in it. Instead of saying, that's it. You're wearing this. I don't want to hear another word about it, which takes the agency away from them. And they're not then learning how to make some choices that will get them move their behavior forward toward a more positive end. One of the things that you mentioned before was the importance of social skills or building those social connections, which leads me to my scorecard. This was not something I was particularly good at when I was a child. And it's very important for me that my kids would not experience this social isolation that I experienced as a kid. And so I'm curious, as we talk about helping the kids build social skills, what can we do as parents to actually help them develop There are a variety of things that one can do, and to some extent it depends on what sorts of challenges any particular child is facing. So if on the one hand, it is more that they feel a bit socially isolated, they may be shy, they may have some version or level of a kind of a social phobia and so forth. Basically, in those circumstances, what one would typically want to do is to try to help them scaffold that situation. So finding out is there any peer they interact with in a positive way or at least a non-negative way, and then see whether or not there are some opportunities to help them interact with that person, arranging a play date with a peer or two who are sort of possible of getting along and structuring that situation in a way that creates the opportunity for them to develop those kinds of skills. So for circumstances where we're talking about is a, the social skills are getting in the way of having social connections in the sense of being more isolated or shy or maybe a bit socially phobic. The other side where kids can wind up with trouble is a kind of a reactive aggression, right, where they have a more hair-trigger anger situation. Those individuals are going to have difficulty forming relationships as well because kids don't want to hang around with somebody who's going to be unpredictably angry, who can blow up with for reasons you may not even understand. And so in those cases, obviously one wants to try to help kids get alternative ways of interacting with those sorts of things. One of the most effective for school-age kids, I mentioned before, the counting to 10. So a typical sort of thing is for kids who have this kind of externalizing symptomatology or, or even an externalizing disorder where they're causing social problems by how they interact with others, is they essentially sort of say, when you get that feeling, come to both acknowledge and recognize that feeling when you feel like you're getting on fire internally and you have to lash out. Step one is to hug yourself, right? Just hold on to yourself. And that has two effects. One, the containment reminds you of sort of a physical contact with others, ideally all the way back to an attachment relationship, that you feel a little bit comforted by that. It also takes your 
ability to be physically aggressive out of play. You're now hugging yourself so you can't slug somebody else, right? And the other is while you're doing that, count to some number, three or five or 10 or whatever it is, and think about what it is that you want to achieve in this situation. And for many kids, if they can acquire that just as a basic habit, it gives them the opportunity to do those sorts of things. So parents and educators and others can essentially try to help a child to understand that this lashing out without thinking is typically going to be create more problems for them than it solves in any way they're interacting with kids often need to see that that what that is is a stress response both of them it's a fight or flight response flight for the internalizing fight for the externalizing and to try to help them then figure out ways to not be driven by that internal dimension but to develop initially low-level scaffolding skills, right, and then gradually build up from that to be able to take on those sorts of things. And it's a matter of socializing how you both interact effectively and avoid antagonizing at the same time. Go ahead. Okay. So just to finish on the scorecard and maybe zoom out or backtrack for a second, did you have a chance to look at it? I'm curious, what do you think about this concept of the scorecard? And do you have any other particular traits there that caught your eye and that you can give parents uh, tactical or practical advice on how they can help the kids develop these type of traits? I think it's a pretty comprehensive list. And, I, and as I was looking through it, I was thinking, gee, I wonder whether I've managed to get all of those in uh, <laughs> in my own parenting. My sense is that we may have an overemphasis on the kind of achievement type things, right? So whether it's in academics or music or sports or or other kinds of things, that we often have a pretty high value, a high salience on those sorts of things and probably under account for those things that you've talked about as soft skills, right? So the ability to to have a positive emotional life, a positive way of interacting socially. And partly that's because that's the way the world's set up. Despite the fact, let's say, that college admissions people typically say we do a holistic review and we read essays. At the end of the day, what they're really looking on are those achievement skills. That's, I mean, you know, I know they can say the other thing, but fundamentally, that's where the brass rings are to be grabbed, right? Right. And I think we undervalue a lot of the things that have to do with how we are internally as people, how we relate to other people as people. And so I think my feeling is that, that any of the things that we can do to try to support the notion that this is important. This is valuable. It's as valuable as the other stuff. The world might not use that as their scorecard, but you need to be thinking about what it is that's going to lead to a good life for you and for those people that you're close to, family and friends. And so that was my kind of reaction is that that I thought it's a great list, but I also worry that as a society, we overvalue particular ones and undervalue or often even ignore the others. I totally agree. And one thing that I'm curious about, especially when I talk to people that are psychologists or researchers in the field, is when it comes to your own family, is there any practical advice or rituals that you instituted with your own family that you kind of like borrowed something that you saw in research and you said, oh, this is something I'm aware of because I'm in the field. Now let's see how I take it and I translate it into our family life to make our life better or to help my kids? It's hard to know kind of 
to what extent might they come from knowing the liter research literature of what's important versus kind of what your natural inclinations would be. And certainly we're very conscious of it. My, my wife is a clinical psychologist and she works with teenagers who are in distress in clinical situations. This has been a typical ongoing conversation and trying to figure out a partnered way of figuring out how to do these things. I think the ones that we've come to, to me, there are three that come to mind when I think about this, and you'll hear echoes of what the research literature says. I think that one comes down to, if I had to put it in one word, it's being engaged, right? Is that you're interacting with the kids, that you are the whole warmth and responsiveness and kind of being there and seeing them as people and valuing them as people. There are lots of ways to do it. And obviously, people, all people fall short. I certainly have. But one of the things that we've done is we pretty much insist, even though they're now all teenagers, that at least three or four nights a week, we're going to have a family dinner. And we're going to sit down and we're going to talk. We're going to talk about our day, about things that went well or things that didn't go well or other things that are on our mind or just what's the nature of the world? What are we hearing? What are we learning? And, and partly that's because we enjoy family interaction, but partly it's because we want to develop the skills of how you interact with people who are closest to you in a positive way, right? Mm -hmm. Which is not to say that they don't have like sibling rivalries and fights, but the idea is that there is a time where we come and we sit down and we try to figure these things out and we try to figure out the world. We try to figure out our relationships with each other. We try to figure out ourselves. So that's one is just really and by engage, I don't mean just like physically being there, but actually being mentally engaged, psychologically engaged. Sorry, but one question on this. Like, yeah. it's very practical, but sometimes when I sit down with my kids to have dinner and I ask them, how was your day? The answer, it was fine or it was great. Uh -huh. It's very hard to, yeah. <laughs> to go in from that <laughs> into a conversation. So do you have any yeah, prompts well, or tactics that you're using to actually ignite a full conversation? Yeah, well, I, there are, and I have to say, I've pretty much borrowed them all from my wife, who's a clinician. <laughs> she has a toolkit that's really very effective and very large. One, for example, is to say, so what was the best thing that happened to you today, right? Or, you know, what do you think is the biggest challenge you're going to be facing tomorrow as you look forward to tomorrow? Mm -hmm. what, what's the biggest challenge? Whatever it is, right? And they're all Obviously, there's schoolwork, and that's a big part of it, but they're all also engaged in sports of one kind or another. And so that might come up, or we'll ask specifically, so how did crew practice go today? Or whatever it might be, right? And so we we tend to do that, and we tend to then say, oh, so we know who their friends are, or at least a number of their friends are, and we'll say, oh, so what's new with so-and-so? How they were mm. facing some challenge about this, or they were thinking about something else. How's that been going? So it's more to kind of get it to be specific, right? Sort of what okay. our experience has been is that once they start talking, they tend to talk. And Okay. And it goes so you just from need there. to get it there. Right. Yeah. But it's sort of getting, oh, I know exactly what you mean, getting over that hump to just kind of the fine, yeah. And partly, you know, <laughs> they, they uh, you know, quite realistically, they want to get away in many times, right? It's sort of like this is not necessarily their favorite thing of the day, but right. we insist on, the, on doing it. And so they're thinking about, well, how do I escape, right? If I start yeah. to do a conversation, <laughs> then I'm not going to go be able to go back to my Xbox, right? I'm going to have to right. stay here and talk for a while. We do find typically once they get into it, they actually kind of get pretty animated very frequently and go on from there. Okay, got it. So the second one, I think, and again, I think this is a little underrated in terms of just conscious awareness, and it's very much around the notion of following their lead 
what are they interested in? What are they thinking about? What are they doing? I mean, I think that if there's a strong temptation, we all look back, I suspect, at our own lives and think, oh, if I had just done this or just done that, things might have gone on a different path that might have been better or different. I'm more tempted to see my kids as a second chance to do it over. It's a good do-over opportunity. And that has to be avoided at all costs. For whatever reasons, they come with their own early experiences, their own interactions with others in the family that we've not been observing or who knows where it comes from. But they all have different interests. We have three kids and they all have quite different interests, some overlapping interests. That's something I think you really cannot predict. Some of them will be like really verbal and interactive early on and others will kind of sit back and not think about things before they do that, or some are more emotionally attuned and really interested in what people are feeling and what am I feeling and why are they feeling that? Why am I feeling this? Those are different kinds of ways of being in the world. They're all legitimate ways of being in the world. And so you have to, in a sense, follow their lead, not to try to impose a structure that you think would work for them, but to support them in the directions that they want to go. Now, obviously, you have to have boundaries and all those other sorts of things. But in a sense, following their lead, the things that just frankly worry me and annoy me a little bit is observing like the aunt or uncle who insists on a great big hug and a cuddle as soon as they see a kid who may not have seen them for the last eight months, and they don't know who these people are, right? Well, that's not following what the kids lead. That's what the adult wants. The kid wants right. something else. So you have to let them be themselves. And then the third thing, we really, really emphasize that you have to be kind to people. Independent of everything else, independent of conflicts, your challenges or competition or this or that, you can't not be kind to people. It's just simply not something you're allowed to do. You can be assertive and you can set your boundaries and you can be very clear when someone's transgressing on your boundaries or over your boundaries and creating problems, but unkindness is not acceptable. So we have the typical amount, I suspect, of sibling rivalries and challenges and back and forth. And when it happens when we're observing it, and it can happen at the dinner table as well, we let it play out to a certain extent because they need to learn how to argue. People argue, right? So we need to let them learn how to do that. But at the end of it, we have to say, now, okay, you need to make up. You need to figure out how to get there. And if they can't do it on their own, we'll say, look, you need to say one positive thing that you like about the other person before we end this conversation. And so the idea is to try to develop the notion of even if you are in conflict and even if you've been having an argument, at the end of the day, you can repair that and you can be kind to the other person. That's a great tip. I'll adopt it immediately to my day-to-day. Uh, -day. <laughs> say one thing uh, good about the other. I love it. So I have last two questions. The first one is a question that I'm asking all my guests, and that's how would you define success as a parent? Well, I would define it as letting your child become their own best human they can be, right? Even if it's not necessarily what you would have wanted, that in effect, there are lots of different definitions of success. Getting a newborn to be a physically healthy living adult, that's a success, right? But right. beyond right. that, I think it's kind of getting them to the point where they no longer need you to scaffold things for them, that they're able to internally regulate themselves to make good internal choices for themselves and that they wind up being able to pursue relationships, activities, careers that are good for them, that are things that they value and that they derive a feeling of success and happiness from. And so I think that's the the sort of creating a healthy, independent, psychologically well-balanced uh, person over and above any other 
should they get this degree or some other degree or a fancier degree or whatever it might be, that's really way secondary to the first. I love this definition. And this leads me to the final question. And you might not have an answer because I'm basically going to ask you for any additional advice or last advice for parents on how to achieve this definition. Well, I would say in addition to the more fundamental general things that we've already talked about, I would want to end with some words for parents who are facing challenges, who feel like they're not doing what they would like to do or that they can't get to where they want it to get. And I guess the message is there would be kids do have capacity for resilience. There is the capacity to get to a better space with them and to recognize that although it's not always easy, that there are pathways and routes to that. There's a great a story that uh, out of the book that you may remember from a long time ago called The Right Stuff of one of the early astronauts. And essentially they were being asked, so what do you do when you've gotten into, he was flying these X-15s up where there was no atmosphere and sometimes you just lose control of the aircraft and it starts flipping and rotating. They say, well, isn't that terrifying? What do you, you know, what can you do? You, you know, you must be thinking this is it, this is the end. And he says, I never think it's the end. What I try to think about is what's the next thing I could try? Is there something else that I could do that might make a difference? And to just keep going with that notion that can be exhausting, but that for kids who are in the developmental, they're still flexible. They're, we know that the brain remains plastic up until the mid-20s, is to be thinking about what could I do and to get help where needed and to focus on what are the things that, that have helped to create resilience for kids who have troubles. What are the things that I, what could I try next? And not give up on them and not to internalize it as your own failure. Even if you think there are things I wish I had done better in the past, that doesn't help. What can I do now? What's the next step that might make a positive difference? It's a great advice for life in general, not just for parenting. It's probably a great way to end. So thank you very much. It's been uh, fascinating. I really, really enjoyed reading your book. Like I said, it's read like a thriller, not like a science book. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you. This conversation, which was more on the scientific side, definitely helped me to tie together a lot of the concepts that we talked about in previous episodes. Number one, it's not nature versus nurture. It's actually nature and nurture. Learning that our actions, especially during pregnancy and early childhood, can modify the genetics of our kids as it relates to stress regulation was a big aha moment for me and one that I think is important to pass along to future parents and to young parents. Number two, the importance of warmth, physical contact, and responsiveness to the well-being of our kids. Just another reason to put down the phones and be fully present when we get home. And lastly, I loved Daniel's family rule about kindness. After every fight, the kids need to say something kind about the other. I think it's equally applicable to adults. Thank you all for listening. If you liked the show, please rate us on iTunes or on your favorite podcasting platform. I'm looking forward to continuing this parenting journey together.